This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Jennifer Petrilieri is an associate professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD and the author of a wonderful new book called Couples That Work, How Dual Career Couples Can Thrive in Love and Work. Jennifer's award-winning research and teaching focus on identity, leadership, and career development. She's particularly interested in how people's close relationships shape who they become professionally and personally, and how moments of uncertainty and crisis make us who we are. This is great work. Jennifer was shortlisted for the Thinker's 50 New Thinker and Talent Awards, and was named one of the world's best 40 business school professors under 40 by Poets and Quants. She earned a PhD in organizational behavior from INSEAD. She also holds an MBA from IMD, the school in Switzerland, and a BSc, Bachelor's of Science, in genetics from Nottingham University in the UK. Before joining INSEAD, she was a postdoctoral fellow of organizational behavior at the Harvard Business School. In this episode, Jennifer and I talk about the three key choice points that couples face, moments that challenge them to combine their parallel lives and form a joint life and how that evolves over the course of their lives. In the first, early in the relationship, it often relates to and, and is a response to external events like the birth of a child or a career opportunity involving relocation. Um, and, and, and to whose career takes precedence. The second, later on, at midlife or mid-career, is less about external events and more about internal questioning of whether one's life is going in the direction one wants and perhaps how to change it. Both partners may be finding themselves outside their comfort zones at this stage and for different reasons. In the third critical juncture, the shared projects of child-rearing and career-building are in the past, and couples confront the question of what's next, what remains. These often either something like a gray divorce or a sense of renewal. Jennifer shares her insights, practical, research-based, from her investigation of over 100 couples over the last five or six years, and offers some great guidance on what works and especially a focus on the vital importance of having meaningful, real conversations about what matters most at each step along the way. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast. And if you do, I would much appreciate it if you would rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it as well. Now, get set to listen to and learn from a leading expert on couples that work, 
It's Jennifer Petrilieri. Jennifer Petrilieri, welcome to Work and Life. Thanks, Stuart. It's great to be here with you. It's great to have you here. Thanks for making it. Um, your book is so important, especially here in the United States where our local, state, and federal government doesn't really provide the kind of support that families need to thrive. So we're going to be exploring together how dual career couples can support each other in the different parts of their lives. You know, just a brief bit of history, if I may. At the beginning of my own and my wife's careers, many years ago, early 80s, uh, we were both PhD candidates in psychology at the University of Michigan. We were uh, very much influenced by work that had been done prior to us, particularly Lottie Balin, Rosabeth Moss Cantor, Bob Kahn, and others, uh, particularly Lottie's work on what she called serial careers, wherein people, especially women back in those days, would, would cycle in and out of the workforce based mostly on uh, child-rearing concerns. The conversation is so different now. We've got people like Sheryl Sandberg advoca advocating for you know, a different approach, leaning in in all phases of one's life at pretty much all times. And there's, there's various approaches to making 50-50 work. You've done uh, a significant piece of research on this. And uh, I'd like you to perhaps start by just telling us how you got into this research project and briefly what you did, like what was the basis of your study, and then we're going to get into what you found and how people can use it. Yeah, so how I got in was really a, a mix of my own predicament and pretty much everyone around me that I knew and, and my academic interests. So my husband, Jean-Pierre, and I, you know, we got together late 20s, um, and the relationship moved fast, you know, within the space of, I think, three years. We were married, two small children. I changed careers. And, you know, things were going well. I was happy with what I'd done. We were good in our relationship. And yet we still faced a lot of struggles um, in the same way that it's not plain sailing for everyone. And, you know, as an academic, of course, what I do when I face struggles is I, I go and look for something to read. And I would go to the library. I would look in magazines. And there was really just nothing that looked at how people could combine two careers and a relationship over the long term. There was advice on how to split the washing up, and there were sort of stories of power couples who had it all sorted, but there was really nothing that looked over the long term. And mm. I thought, you know, if no one's written that, that's what I'm going to do, and that's where the research started. And it's interesting that you talked about, like, the different models. I think from the get-go, I was looking for what's the solution, right? What's the best way to make this work? Is there, is there an arrangement? Is it 50-50? Is it mm -hmm. a career leader and a career follower? What works best? And, you know, halfway through my research, I think two or three years in, I just could not find this arrangement. What I was finding was there were lots of different arrangements of course. that couples could make work, and, and I was puzzled. And, and the deeper I got in, the more I saw... Wait, so you were puzzled because there was this variety that you couldn't quite grasp at first? But Yeah, and at first I was... I think, like many of us, I was looking for the, the secret source, right, the one solution, but the more I looked, the more I realized it wasn't about the choices per se. It was about the way couples went about making those choices, mm -hmm. right? It was about the conversations that went into those choices. And so really my aim with the research shifted from finding the answer 
to trying to look at what is the process we need to go through and what do we need to think through and how do these challenges appear at different points of our lives right. and how can we make it work over the long term. So uh, give us just like the 30-second version of what the substance of the research was in terms of your, your method. Like what did, you, what did you do? How did you study this question? Yeah, so I am, I'm a qualitative researcher, so I went and spoke to... Um, more than 100 working couples from across the world. Mm -hmm. And they were very different life stages and career stages. So some were in their early 20s, just starting out, trying to build things. You know, others at mid-career, others into their 60s, you know, towards the end of their careers. And they were very varied, you know, some gay, some straight, Hmm. some on first marriages, some on second or third, some with kids, some without kids. And I really looked for that variation Mm -hmm. and then spent time with these couples really understanding their life story and understanding what had happened over the course of their time together, what were the challenge points and how they'd overcome them. So that's the basis of the research. Okay, and that is what you write up uh, so vividly in couples that work with uh, with these wonderful um, uh, stories that that really bring to life the ideas that you gleaned from what you found. Uh, you know, like you and Jim Piero, my wife and I have had to deal with these issues ourselves over the course of now 38 years of marriage and three mm-hmm. kids. And now uh, one, one of our children is married, has a 12-year-old son that uh, came into the marriage uh, with, with his wife last April. And now uh, they're expecting to deliver their uh, biologically created child. That's, that's going to happen later this year. And, and they're staring down some really tough choices right now as they both have uh, careers that mean a ton to them. So all this is very personal uh, for both of us. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you focused in your study on you know, the, the nature of the relationship and the quality of the communication and contracting. Um, to deal with the the struggles for power, their their the personal hopes and aspirations of the different parties, the the, the cultural assumptions that that people interject, you know, that they make uh, a part of their own psychology, you know, the expectations that they that they aim to, that they aim to meet. You focus on three key transition points in the in the life cycle of dual career couples. Take us through first what those are. And, and then what the challenges are at each, at each of those stages. Yeah. So when I looked at the stories of couples, I found that, you know, they weren't always struggling, but neither were things always calm. And they tended to hit three what I call transitions in the book, mm-hmm. where these struggles were kind of most apparent. And it's interesting you talked about um, your son there, because he's facing really this first transition. And the first transition is about combining our parallel lives into one joint life. And that doesn't actually happen when we first get together. So what happens when we first get together? We may feel committed to each other. We may even get married, um, move in and all that sort of stuff. But really, in those early years, our careers are very much on parallel tracks. If one of us needs to travel for work, we do. We don't think about it. And it's only in that first transition when we hit our either our first major um, responsibility, like becoming parents, or our first major life choice together, 
a, a classic example these days for young people is one of us gets offered a job in a different location. Mm-hmm. You know, careers are more mobile now. What do we do, right? We've hit a point where we've got to make some decisions that impact us boys both. Do we go our separate ways? If we stay together, does one person become the career leader, the other the career follower? Do we try and sustain a career a leader? That's the term you use? Ship. Not really, but in that situation, you know, like, am I leading the geographic move and is, and is the other person kind of following it? Mm-hmm. And these are, these are points, um, and they're often very happy events, right? A great career opportunity, the arrival of a new child. For couples that get together in later life, it might be how do we blend our families from original marriages? But these are all mm-hmm. points where we have got to think about how our careers and lives fit together. And so the question couples wrestle with in this first transition is, you know, how can we make that work? How can we make our lives work in a way that we can both get what we want professionally and also maintain this, you know, healthy, loving relationship? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, those, there, there, are, there are other changes that occur down the road. Uh, my children were quite surprised to learn fairly recently uh, that um, I transferred to the University of Michigan to be with with my wife. I followed her there. I quit the University of Chicago and moved to to the University of Michigan to follow her. She then uh, moved to Philadelphia because of my job here at Wharton, but she at the at the you know before before then she was uh, in graduate school she was making more money than I was. She was the primary breadwinner. Um, and you know, we made. I don't. I don't want to consume all of our time on my story, but I, you know, like most of our listeners, have had tricky, complicated, fraught choices for how we were going to invest in our family and our love together and our careers. Um, so that first transition. What are the what are the important issues that you gleaned in your study for what yeah. people face? Yeah, I think. The important issues, and I think your story captures them really, really well, is about how are we going to make this decision, right? There's a decision that needs to be made, and the question is how, what's the basis? Mm -hmm. And the mistake many, many couples make is to focus on the practicalities. Who earns the most is a classic example. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what practically are we going to do? Now, it's understandable that we focus on this, right? Because the practicalities are what we bump into day after day. You know, whose turn is to do X? Can we afford to do Y? Mm -hmm. But the problem with focusing on those practicalities is it ignores really what's driving our relationship. And what's driving our relationship are those discussions of, you know, what really matters to us? What are the principles by which we want to live our life? Mm -hmm. And it's so important for couples to sort that layer out first before they get to the practicalities, because that's the layer that tells us, like, are we satisfied with our lives? Are we living up to our expectations, our desires, our dreams? And when I talk about what really matters, what I mean are the specific things that for us individually and us in our couple are going to be the yardsticks by which we measure our lives. So that might be a specific career ambition for one of us. It might be, do we craft enough time as a couple to pursue some activities that are really important to us, a hobby, volunteering, being Mm -hmm. part of the community? It might be around building financial stability. It might be around the kind of couple we want to become. You know, we want to be an adventurous couple. 
and um, you know do certain things on the side it's really important that those principles those yes. things that matter are understood before we make the decisions mm-hmm. because it's so easy to make a decision for example based on money you know one partner I heard so many stories you know one partner got offered this great job it involves in move but you know I was going to get paid you know, x thousand more so it was worth it well, you know, we all need money, but money's not the only thing. And very often... Right on, Jennifer. You know, when we make those decisions, they have so many unintended consequences. And in that first transition, the one that your son is now facing, it's so vital that we start with those grounding conversations around what really matters and then build up to the practicalities and not the other way around. Absolutely. So that grounding in, you know, the values and aspirations and the vision that we have for the life we want to lead together, uh, why is it that most people don't do that work of, uh, you know, conscious, mindful, intentional, stepping back to reflect on the the big picture, the underlying layer, as you refer to it, um, before being driven by more reactively by, you know, the immediate need for, well, you know, who's going to make the extra X percent. uh, And so we should make that the primary driver of our decisions, for example. It it is a great question. And it's one that I really looked into because it was puzzling at first. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, these are the kind of conversations that we all crave. You know, many of Mm -hmm. us really crave these conversations around what matters in our lives. And I think what's happening is two things here. One is, you know, Those of us in the workforce now are really the first generations of dual career couples. So there's no role models. There's no conversation in society around what these conversations are. So there's very little language people can use. There's very few guides out there for people. So there's a lot of not knowing. I think, especially in our early years, and I remember myself when I was there, you know, this honeymoon period of a relationship is wonderful and it's exciting and you get carried away and you think everything will be amazing forever. And of course you do, you know, you're new and in love. And, And sometimes these conversations just don't occur to you until you hit that first transition, that mini crisis point. And then suddenly you're, um, you know, almost backpedaling to those conversations. So I think there's a combination of reasons. But it's certainly not for lack of appetite. So whenever Mm -hmm. I present my work, I challenge people to go away and have these conversations. And, you know, two days later, I get a a flurry of emails from people saying, oh, you know, it's absolutely amazing. It's the best conversation we've had for years. Mm -hmm. And it's not that there's resistance. I just think a lot of it is we've not developed the language or the habit of having these conversations, either in our couples, but also in our peer networks, within our families, um, and within our friendship networks. I know, I know. And and in my work on leadership from the point of view of the whole person, what I call total leadership, what I have people do, is establish first uh, a way to articulate their values, their vision, what they stand for, the kind of world they're trying to create in the different parts of their lives, and then identify the most important people in their lives in the in the different parts of it at work at home and in the community and then engage in conversations about what they need from each other and how to uh, build their relationship over time in the context of the other important relationships that matter yeah and th- and that that all is the, the you know the groundwork for then thinking about and taking action on what they can do 
to uh, make smart choices about how to live and how to mm-hmm. work and how to bring the pieces together in a way that works over the course of time. Yeah. Uh, and it's a revelation for most people to first think about what matters most to them uh, and then to have meaningful exchanges with uh, the people who matter most to them about those questions. And it's it, it, it always opens the doors of perception and and, and creates avenues uh, for for creative movement uh, into the future together. Uh, and so I'm, I'm deeply familiar with what you're talking about uh, with respect to um, how good it feels. Yeah, to... and I think, and I think um, there's another layer of importance mm-hmm. around couples, which is not just around what matters, those principles. It's also around... What are the lines we are not willing to cross? And I think this Mm -hmm. is critical for couples because we can so easily walk down the thin end of the wedge. So, And these lines might be around time, right? What is too much time at work? Okay. That's an important That's an important line. What is too much work travel? You know, with two busy schedules, Mm -hmm. if you take a job with more than 20% work schedule, does that negatively impact mine so, so much it's not possible? Mm-hmm. What about geographic locations? Are there some places that even if you got offered the job of the century, it are just off the table? Now, these having these because boundaries, of location, yeah. For mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. having these conversations is so vital because um, they narrow our options. Now, this sounds counterintuitive, right? We all think more choice the better, but as you well know, I'm sure. Um, the more choices, not the better. The more options we have, the di- more difficult it is to choose, and mm-hmm. the more we, re- we regret our choices. And so what having a real open and honest conversation around these boundaries, these lines does, is it shows you what is the field we are playing in as, as a couple mm-hmm. and what's outside that field. And what that does is it takes away a lot of regret from the from the um, from the couple, because if I know an option is outside of the boundaries, it's much easier for me to say, "I'm sorry, I'm just not playing that game. That's that's outside of my mm. field." Mm-hmm. Without going through an endless negotiation and then feeling regret and resentment and all this, so I think it's not just about what matters. It's like what is the field we're playing in and what's outside of that field. And 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 that's especially important at this first transition when they're combining their lives. Absolutely. And so what specifically do you do you suggest as guidance for how to have those conversations and deal with differences of opinion about what those lines should be? Because for sure, uh, most people don't have exactly aligned goals and, yeah. and aspirations. So. So, so first of all, I think, you know, extremely practically, it's worth sitting down together you know, pen and paper in hand and taking some time, jotting some notes down on your own and then really openly sharing them and sharing with each other, not just this is my line, but why? What is the rationale behind it? Why is that line really important to me? Mm-hmm. Because once we understand those underlying reasons, it's a lot easier to find that common ground. And what I find is there are only a few things that really make couples incompatible. An obvious one is if someone really wants children and someone else really doesn't. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. That is is very hard to resolve. Probably should have talked about that before you committed to each other, though, right? Well, the reason I say this now is that, you know, what my hope is that couples have these conversations right up front in their early days. Mm-hmm. And in fact... Um, yes, my, my wife and I, we talked about our first child, I think, on our first date. Yeah, we did too. And my, <laughs> my, my husband already had the name sorted out. <laughs> so did we. <laughs> Although we didn't end up using the name that we had uh, discovered at the beginning, but uh, so you know, I was talking to mm-hmm. someone the other day who had an early copy of the book, and she shared it with a friend. Mm-hmm. And her friend was in the early stage of a relationship, and mm-hmm. she had these conversations, and they realized that there was a fundamental aspect in terms of geography that they were just incompatible, and they did end up splitting up. Mm-hmm. And she said to her friend, you know, it was really painful, but I projected myself forward and thought, thank goodness we found this out now and not in five years' time. Absolutely. It's really vital we kind of educate the younger generation about the importance of these conversations. Now, this isn't about having a tick list of 100 things and my ideal man or woman needs to align with all these things. It's around what are those real fundamental boundaries. All right. So, uh, the, and those have to do with whether or not to have children. What else? Uh, uh, what else have you discovered as are they so the crucial questions? Geography potentially mm-hmm. in this day and age where we often, you know, cross cultural marriages and things. Geography is a really important one. And then I think if there's a real deep fundamental difference in terms of what's the balance between work and life outside of work. Now, the, way, the reason I say fundamental difference is it, there's no issue if you want to dedicate you know, 80% and I want to dedicate 70%, that's fine. But if one of us really wants a lot of time all together as a family and the other person you know, wants to go for gold in their career, that's, that's quite difficult to, to balance out because that's not a personal preference, that's a preference of the time we spend together. So there aren't many that are real fundamental stumbling blocks, but there are a few, and mm-hmm. it's important to ensure you're aligned on those. And for all the other things, it's about getting close enough. You know, we're not looking for perfect overlap. Mm-hmm. It's very rare that couples are 100% aligned. But simply understanding your partner's boundaries and what matters to them and understanding why they're important it really goes a long, long way to yes. making it work in a relationship. And that, you know, the reasoning, the, the uh, you know, it's not just the position that you have uh, yeah. regarding location or time, uh, commitment to work or family or other domains of life. Uh, it's why that matters. And often that involves looking back into your history, right, as to, you know, here's why this matters to me yeah. uh, because of how I've, you know, come up in the world and what what I've experienced. Exactly. Uh, and those those are conversations that uh, require you know commitment, compassion, openness, curiosity, uh, and and real um, uh, genuine uh, concern for the other as well as for mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. So Jennifer. Um, we talked about the first important transition point, um, and you know when you're just combining, we we ended on the question of 
Wait, how soon do you start to talk about the fundamentals, uh, your values, the boundaries that you can't cross? What's your recommendation about that, Jennifer, before we get into the second and third transitions? Well, the first date may be a little too premature, but I think really the sooner the better. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not about saying, okay, second date, let's get the pen and the paper out. But it's about (laughs) starting to just get into the habit of talking about these things. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to get away from the thought that these are heavy topics that require kind of a three-hour session with no interruptions. You know, it's really about can we develop the habit that these conversations become part of the fabric of our relationship? Yes. Yes. And and just having them is fun. Yeah. Right? When uh, Especially when you find someone with whom you are, well, aligned. Yeah, absolutely. And better sooner than later. Completely. Right? Because the costs yeah. are greater the, closer, the more you invest, right, to, to yeah. have to then divest. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, if you're just starting out, you think you found the right one, Get into that conversation and do it in a fun way. Um, And I also think it doesn't take, you know, some people are like, okay, do I need to go away for a weekend and be walking along the beach or something? No, is the quick answer. I mean, that's lovely, but you don't need to. I I, You know, I know couples who've done this over Skype because they have a long-distance relationship. You know, it doesn't require a specific time. It just requires a bit of thought and Mm -hmm. some investment. Yeah. I mean, the laundromat, anywhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a commitment to building a relationship based on mutual understanding and respect from the start. Yeah. All right. So what's the second transition point that you observed in your study? So the tra- second transition point comes at a sort of midlife, mid-career is the usual time it pops up. And it's sparked by something very different. It's really sparked instead of by an external event, it's sparked by internal questioning. So for anyone who's, who's reached that stage yet, they, they will know that it's a time when we tend to start questioning the path we're on. So for mm-hmm. most of us in our 20s and 30s, we're going full steam ahead. You know, we're building our career. We may be building our family. We're running, 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 running. And very often the path we take is a combination of what we want and social expectations. You know, our parents suggest things, our peers, you know, I'm sure the students at Wharton will know this, you know, everyone's running into a certain company or a certain bank and you think, oh, maybe I should do that as well. It's very normal. But what happens in our, in our 40s in this period of midlife is we stop and we start to reflect and we ask the question, is this really my life I'm living? Is this really the direction I want to go in? And this can create a lot of stress in relationships because Mm. when we experience our partner having those questions, it's so easy to interpret it as about our relationship. Mm. Goodness, is this my fault? Is do they not love me anymore? Is it a rejection of who I am? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it really cuts to the core. And so it can be a time of real conflict actually for couples. Sure particularly when, of course, we're both questioning things Mm -hmm. and everything seems up in the air. And this is where it's very important we look, we look at our notion of what does it mean to be a supportive partner? You know, classically, when we think of support in our relationships, we think, and I'm going to be very British at this point, we think of tea and tea, right? We think of... I want someone to pat me on the back and plump up my self-esteem and make me feel better about myself. How's that that particularly British? 
Well, the tea and sympathy, right? A good cup of tea solves everything. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that it's that kind of support is lovely. Who doesn't like it? Mm -hmm. But that is not the kind of support we need for the second transition. What is needed? The kind of support we need is that plus, and it's what I talk about in the book as a secure base. And what that means, a secure base relationship is one in which there is that layer of pumping up your self-esteem. But there's also a real push away from the comfort zone into a push to go out there and take risks and explore. And it can feel very counterintuitive in our relationship because we tend to have this view in our societies that a good relationship is one that we're very close. And what we need at that stage of life is actually a relationship which supports us to move away from our comfort zone, mm-hmm. move away from the relationship, away from the track we're in, and look at what else is out there. Because we know that when we're in this stage of questioning, the only way we're going to get through it to a resolution is by exploring and experimenting and reflecting on the past. Mm-hmm. And these three activities are vital, but they are threatening to a couple, right? So the only way we feel supported enough to go and do those genuinely and wholeheartedly is by having a partner who is secure enough to provide this secure base to, yes, you know, look after us and make us feel better, but also push us out and be like, get out there take some Mm. risks, do this exploration, I support you, and if you fall flat on your face at some point, which we all do when we take risks, you know, we'll pick the pieces up together. And it's Mm. a very different way of thinking about support in our relationships. And so you you refer to how people are um, threatened potentially by that. So what, what have you learned about how to overcome those fears of being supportive in the way that you've just described and encouraging your partner to to get out in the world and explore and experiment um how do you how does one deal with the ambivalence about providing such support yeah i think one of the important things to to realize and to acknowledge in the couple is that we do feel ambivalent about it i think too often in our couples we try to be the cheerleader, right? That everything's great all the time. Well, you know what? It's not. And that's actually okay. And I think it's very important we recognize in our couples, you know, I I really want to support you and I think you should go out there. And I actually feel quite wobbly about it. And it's really important. Wobbly. I mean, I'm translating for our American audience. (laughs) You know, I feel quite anxious about that. (laughs) I feel, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm worried. What if you find out something? I don't. I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's very important we recognize those two sides. I also think what I found from my research is, you know, it's this idea of psychological mirroring. When one person provides this support to the other, it's very often reciprocated. And so what can happen in couples is this classic, you know, we're both stood around the edge of the pool and who's going to be the first one to dive in? Um, And what I would say to couples in this stage is it doesn't matter. Just one of you dive in and the other will probably follow, will Mm. probably follow suit quite quickly. So I think it's a case of, you know, have the courage, try it and be open about it's not easy. Right. I'm really committed to this and I'm also feeling anxious about it. And can we talk about both sides of that, the excitement and the joy and also the the feeling of being a bit unsure and a little bit threatened by this. 
And you also talk about asymmetric support. What what, what does that look like, and and how how have successful couples dealt with it? Yeah, so asymmetric support happens when one of us falls into the role of the of the supporter of the the, the person who gives the loving push, if I can put it that way, mm-hmm. and the other person falls into the into the receiving end, and we get locked in these roles. So, of course, at any uh-huh. one time, there's usually one person's the person who needs a bit more support and the other is a supporter. That's normal. But the, the problem with asymmetry is when it gets baked into a couple, right, when we get stuck in these roles and we can't change them. Hmm. And I think in these situations... Why is that though, a problem? It's a problem because we all need both, mm-hmm. right? We all need that support. And in our relationships, it's also important that we're all giving that support you know, it fulfills psychological needs in our relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we, get, when we get locked into these patterns over the long term, this is where bad things happen. And I think it's very easy when we see a couple in this situation to see one as the victim and one as the perpetrator, right? You know, you're getting all the support and you're not giving it back. It's your fault. But of course, it takes two to tango, right? There's always a dance going on that gets people locked into these roles and it's really important for couples to be aware of this if they're if they're getting stuck in these roles voice it and really actively try to get themselves out of it so Mm. think about okay how can i step out of the being supported role and and turn the tables and this is where there's the habit of having these regular conversations and and Building that into the fabric of our relationship really comes out. So that's, uh, again, a, um, an exhortation for why it's, it's so important to be starting out with uh, conversations about mutual needs and expectations, knowing, yeah. of course, that it's, it's, gonna, it's going to change over time. Yeah. Um, and, I, and then I think there are some real benefits to being in working couples. You know, if we think of this second transition, yes. a lot of it is ex- how do we explore new territories? Well, the great thing about having a working partner is we have an ideal spar- sparring partner there, someone who mm. has a rich experience, a rich network. Mm-hmm. And I think all too often we focus on the challenges, but we also know there are some huge benefits of having being in a working partnership. So and, does Jim Piero provide you with that kind of support? Jennifer, if I may ask? Yeah, absolutely. Of course he does. I know he does. And you know what? It's not always comfortable, and I don't always like it. (laughs) But why is that? And that's okay, because I think it's this idea of the loving push, right? And we all like to be encouraged, but sometimes... Yeah, but stop pushing. That hurts. You know, stop pushing. (laughs) And yet, I think what I found in my research very clearly was the couples who were really the most successful. And when I say successful, I don't mean objective success. I mean, they felt, you know, happy and pleased that mm-hmm. they had meaningful careers and they had a fulfilled relationship. I'm glad you clarified the meaning of success because yeah. I don't like it when people think of success as material no. gain. No, no, it no, is no, no, no. one indicator of what some people yeah. value, but it's certainly not what many people think of as a yeah. successful life or career or exactly. relationship. So. But these couples who really felt successful, they felt it was mm-hmm. working. Were often, success, were often couples that had a high degree of challenge in their relationship mm. that kind of had a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And I found this really fascinating. Um, and, of course, it was because in these couples they were really supporting each other to take those risks. Mm-hmm. And we all know when we take risks, we sometimes fall flat on our faces. Mm-hmm. And we, and we often struggle. experience some anxiety in, as yes. we're taking them. And we struggle. 
But the way these couples talked about their struggle was, you know, it's my struggle. I cho- chose that struggle. Hmm. And so it's meaningful and, and it's my adventure. And, um, and it was so different from other couples who didn't have that same layer of support and were perhaps facing some of the same challenges. And for them, it was really a grind. It was something they had to get through. You know, life is throwing these things at me. And just this different way of being in our relationships makes us look at the world through a very different lens. I want to, in, the, in these, these last few minutes here, talk about the third transition uh, that you saw in the patterns that you observed in, in your research. Tell us about that. So the third transition comes at a time when the commitments that sort of kept us really singularly focused in our you know, 20s, 30s, 40s are behind us. So if we had children, they've probably flown the nest by now. That period of really intense career acceleration is past us. Um, And we're entering a new phase in life. Our social roles are changing, if you like. You know, we're no longer the bright young things. We're now mentoring them. (laughs) And what that does is it brings about real fundamental questions of identity. So on the one hand, there can be a sense of loss. You know, who am I now if I'm not the hotshot? Who am I now if I'm not the active hands-on parent? But at the same time, and I'm sure, you know, as you know very well and many of your listeners know well, it's a time of life that holds immense opportunities, right? And this is where the changing life cycle is really impacting the generations now at this age in a way that has never impacted generations before. How do you mean? So, well, we're all living longer, which means our careers are longer. You know, very few of us are retiring at 60, 65 anymore. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the labor market is changing. You know, there's the rise of the gig economy, freelancing, all of these options that were simply not available to generations gone past. And so what happens is we get to, say, our our early or mid-50s. And while some things are behind us, suddenly there's a world of possibilities opening up. And you know what? We've got 15, maybe even 20 years left of our career to take advantage of them. And so it's a time when people's horizons tend to broaden. You know, if we think hmm. of the 30s and 40s, most of us are focusing on two things and two things only, our career and our family. And that's about all we can manage. And if we can keep those going, we're feeling pretty pleased with ourselves. At this stage in life, our horizons tend to broaden. And we also think about community. We think about legacy. We think about perhaps circling back to some of our activities and pursuits of our, you know, of our youth. This real broadening of horizon combined with the opportunities to work in a different way than just simply powering on full-time in in perhaps a corporate role really lead to us to be able to play with this idea of who are we going to become in this last phase of our working life. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's a a really exciting time for couples. I think particularly in this in the period of time we are now in terms of how careers are changing. But it's also a time that if couples have not been dealing with the power dynamics in the couples, the, the resentment, these kind of things, it can really come back to bite at this mm-hmm. point because the joint project we've had, be it child rearing or something else, has gone. And suddenly there's a question of what is left holding us together as a couple. 
And it's no coincidence that we see the rise of what is called gray divorce, right? Especially in the U.S. Gray divorce. Yeah. That's a color. I know, it's it's awful saying, isn't it? But there's a real rise of of divorce in the sort of mid to late 50s. And and we can see this really with Transition 3 in that people are sat there. And for some people, once the kids go and the career plateaus, there's a sense of, you know, what's left in the relationship and some relationships have hollowed out and there's a real split here so some relationships have hollowed out and they even either have a big mountain to climb to claw them back to a great space or they become one of the great divorce statistics Hmm. or on the other hand the couples that have worked well throughout enter this huge phase of renewal and um you know i loved talking to these um transition three couples and just seeing some of the really innovative things they were doing. Mm-hmm. And many of them started taking on projects together. Now, that, that doesn't mean they work together full time, but uh-huh. it might be a side project. It might be a community project. Some of them did do some professional projects as Maybe well. even starting a new business together. Exactly, mm-hmm. starting a new business together. And many couples at this phase moved to some form of portfolio careers. So they would... You know, maybe have a part-time role, do some freelancing, maybe some entrepreneurship, some work in the community, um, you know, some not-for-profit work. And there were some real innovative things couples were doing. So at each phase, uh, there's opportunity for for couples to become stronger and to enrich the the varied experiences that they have alone and together. And yet there's risks of that not happening. And, and it seems <clears throat> what I glean from, you know, the big idea is, is the importance of engaging in an ongoing dialogue about who you are and who you want to become. I completely agree. And I think one way I, I think of the three transitions <clears throat> is their points at which we build three new relationships. Hmm. Now, hopefully we build them with the same people. But for some couples, these are the points in which, you know, that relationship ends and they build with, an, with another person. And I think that gives us hope and it also gives us a caution. The hope is there is opportunities to really renew, as you say, to grow, to shift direction and to leverage the investment we've put in each other. And also building a new relationship takes a lot of work. And it takes a lot of investment. Mm-hmm. And the question is, you know, are we willing to put in that investment and reap the rewards? Or are things going to stagnate and we go a different direction? What's the main thing that that businesses and other organizations can do to support dual career uh, couples over the life course? Yeah, we need to stop treating talent as if it's the property of an individual. Too often our partners are kind of footnotes to our careers in Mm -hmm. the eyes of organizations. Mm -hmm. They're rarely, barely recognized and if they are recognized, they're either seen as a burden or as a kind of supporter. You know, I'm, I'm patting you on the back. I'm packing your suitcase as you go off on work trips. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's not the reality. The reality is our partners are key protagonists in our working lives, not just in our lives, in our working lives. And organizations really need to recognize that and look at how they mm-hmm. can look at our careers and ourselves more holistically and take into account our partners. Um, and you, you write about that as well, so people can find out more about what yeah. that means uh, in your book and in your articles. Uh, I have one more question, Jennifer, and that is uh, a question I've been asking all of my guests this year. It's about accountability, because I'm hoping this is the year of accountability. 
how do you hold yourself accountable for what's most important to you? Through my partnership with John Piero, you know, we take a lot of time to talk about what's important to each other and we really hold each other to account. And I think this is really important that it's very hard on your own to hold yourself to account. Mm-hmm. It's about how can we do that together and, um, and really help each other hold each other to account. Yes, and uh, that is wise advice for all couples working together, working separately, one working, one not, uh, and much appreciate your sharing that. Jennifer, I really appreciate your taking the time to speak with me on the show tonight. What's the best way for listeners to learn more about your book and the other work that you're doing? So they can very happily visit my website. The details of the book are there and, um, and all the other articles I've written, which is jpetrolieri.com. Spell that, please. J-P-E-T-R-I-G-L-I-E-R-I.com. All right. Uh, Jennifer, again, really appreciate your taking the time, and thank you for doing this wonderful research and, and sharing it with us. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you, Stu. I hope you found my conversation with Jennifer Petrilieri to be eye-opening, as I did. Really practical and valuable wisdom based on a great research project that then leads me to present you with a challenge, an invitation. If you are in a dual career couple... Here's my my challenge to you. Start a conversation with your significant other, with your partner, about what's really important to you both right now. What are your core values and your shared values, as well as the values that you hold independently? What's the common ground that you're walking together? And where are are your limits, the boundary conditions that are important for you to keep in mind now at this stage? What happens when you aim to have that conversation, conduct it with what I would recommend is a sense of compassion, curiosity, and commitment to discovering something new? about yourself and about each other. What do you indeed discover? I would love to hear about the results. You can never do too much of this kind of investment in your shared life, your shared future. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you what you find. And if you want some further advice, uh, you can contact me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or... Find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit Work and Life Podcast. 
com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.